Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shock Doctors podcast. I'm Jim Smith. I am Matt Jerndaisy. And we are the Shock Exorcist Doctors. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I tried something and it didn't work. Much like uh, David Gordon Green many times over for the past several years. <laughs> That's yeah, exactly we, uh, right. If we were going to get doctorates in, every, in anything, it probably would be demonology. I think that's kind of our bread and butter. Yeah, I, I think so, too. So from context, you've probably gathered that the subject of this episode of the podcast is The Exorcist Believer, which is, in fact, David Gordon Green's second first shot at a legacy sequel. Uh, yeah. you know, Second franchise, he's jumped on board for that purpose. His uh, latest abortion, and I use that word advisedly. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't laugh, but in context, it is pretty funny, and you'll find out why. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good. That makes three straight legacy sequels that he's made that are bad, and that's after we thought his first Halloween film was pretty decent. Yeah, I feel no strong or even weak desire to revisit it but I liked it well enough when it well, came out. It probably doesn't help that it's two sequels probably made you retroactively even less enamored of it. Yeah, it's somewhat guilty by association. They are going to make at least one more of these. Originally, the word on the street was that it was going to be a trilogy, much like his Halloween reboot was a trilogy. Uh, that's just what he does now, I guess, and not just horror reboots, but three for the price of one. And I, I got that sense in part because they trot out Ellen Burstyn for this one. And the question on everyone's lips is, where's Linda Blair? Yeah. And then the marketing seemed to suggest that Reagan had died, you know, been poochied at some point in the last several decades. And that proves to not be the case. They're at least making one more of these. It's going to be called The Exorcist Deceiver. So... I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't wind up making a third one. It all, of course, depend on if the second one takes money. I, I don't know where they go from here with the rhyme, or if they just abandon that. <laughs> well, it's it's like how apparently the next Mission Impossible movie is not going to be called Dead Reckoning Part Two anymore. Oh yeah, they're they're gonna try to live die repeat the. Uh, they're gonna they're just memory hole the Part One out of existence. <laughs> oh, such foolishness. Yeah. So you you and anyone can spend the next few years tittering over what the third Exorcist movie might be called. I've heard Exorcist Golden Retriever or, you know, <laughs> Golden Receiver, like an Air Bud thing. Yeah. <laughs> the uh. favorite one that I came up with was The Exorcist De Beaver, which is a reference <laughs> that will be De Beaver. lost on most everyone, but I knew that my co-host would appreciate it. <laughs> Oh, that's spectacular. I've still never seen that movie. but uh... Oh, nor I. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, The Exorcist Believer follows two families, essentially. One, a single father and his daughter, and then the more traditional nuclear family unit, two parents and their daughter. They also have some other kids, but they're basically just set dressing. And in fact, they almost entirely are set dressing. Yeah, the nuclear family, the white family, is given short shrift. And I say that despite the fact that the uh, single dad, whose name starts with a V, I want to say Victor, but I yeah. feel like that might not be right. Uh, no, I think Victor is right. 
he's the de facto protagonist, but even he has very little going on. It's just the stock atheist who begrudgingly becomes a believer in the face of mounting evidence that you know it's 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 just like the most paint by numbers version of who's supposed to be the lead in a movie like this well yeah and this is the actor portraying this character is leslie odom jr who does real movies and is a respected thesp and singer too like he played sam cook in uh what was it one night in miami yeah among other things and so yeah wasted like ellen burston goes on to be wasted later in the film yeah i mean she's squandered in truly spectacular fashion almost like a, in a in a way that feels deliberate and mean-spirited but it's it's hard to know if that's the case or if it was just ineptitude that kind of gives it that stink <laughs> yeah these two girls are friends and one night after school they go off into the woods to do a spooky ritual trying to contact Angela is Leslie Odom Jr.'s daughter, again, single dad. Her mother is dead, died when she was born. We'll get into that momentarily. And she's essentially trying to contact her in the spirit realm. And this is how the demon gets in, basically. And then we just do the whole thing from there. Yeah, and I'm going to, I think, talk about this more after the break, but just going in i like the setup here not the prologue didn't care for the prologue which i'm about to recount but the setup of the two girls missing in the woods for several days who then reappear mysteriously and have become demonically tainted in some way i think that that's a good elevator pitch for a belated exorcist sequel it's kind of its own thing it ties in with parental fears and stranger danger type stuff and milk carton kids and it's just kind of piggybacking on a lot of different kind of psychological and social things that are frightening and so that's effective enough while it lasts but then once things actually get underway and we start doing the usual hoopla with the exorcism you would think there being two girls would raise the stakes somehow but it really in no way materially changes how this movie goes about its business i mean the dynamic is exactly the same they're just like a two-headed hydra basically they do nothing with the fact that you've got two possessed girls this time it's just sort of i mean by the numbers doesn't even begin to cover it well they do exactly one thing with the fact that there are two of them and it comes up during the exorcism itself and it's a stupid plot device the thing with the steam or the well, we'll, well, we'll get, get when we it. get there. We open in Haiti. Now, actually, before we get to Haiti, I'd just like to make this one silly observation. Blumhouse has these days... Oh, yeah, their, their new logo looks really R.L. Steinish. Yes, it it's, looks... it's very elaborate. It used to be just like kind of a camera swerving around a room where different spooky things were happening in different corners. But now there's this whole flying camera winding its way through a bunch of different rooms where a bunch of different stuff happens. And I've seen this logo a few times now, but this is the first time I noticed that there is one part in it where there is a bathtub and a hand dangling over the side. Uh Uh-huh. So they have made bathtub wife a canonical part of their logo, (laughs) which I I think is hilarious 
a slap in the face to me specifically is what it is. <laughs> and then when the, when the logo finally comes to rest after what feels like an eternity, I don't like this new trend in studio logos, the, the DreamWorks one that it's debuted awful. a year or so ago where it's like a theme park ride. It's like, boom, it's Boss Baby. Boom, it's uh, Shrek and Fiona. Boom, it's fucking, I don't know, over the hedge or who, who gives a shit. Uh, you know, it's, it's just like an, a, an MCU byproduct. I think, yeah. but instead of Black Widow, you've got Bathtub Wife. That's you know the <laughs> uh, member of the uh, ensemble that they trot out to. We open in Haiti. Uh, we open, <laughs> in fact, with a kind of limp-dicked homage to a shot from the original movie that was baller in its original context in the original movie. Just before we cut to Georgetown for the first time away from i want to say iraq father Marin is at this dig and he is preparing spiritually you know he's stealing himself for some kind of impending cataclysm the whole opening prologue is just like pregnant with a sense of dread and there are two dogs fighting and uh, you hear even when you're not looking at them you hear them snarling on the soundtrack and it creates this feeling of ferocity and, and, and conflict that these two entities, light and darkness, whatever, are going to be brought into conflict with one another. Here we open, and right away, two dogs are just going at it. So right off the bat, it's been there, done that. It's not really prepared for. I mean, I guess it's functionally doing the same thing that it did the first time, but it's just sort of unceremoniously plopped on our at our feet. <laughs> and then the shot starts freezing, and it takes a second to figure out why that would be the case. It's because Leslie Odom Jr. is taking photos of the dogs. But the way that it's shot, it's the visual language of like a character in a spy movie surreptitiously snapping photos of Jason Bourne or whoever. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so right away you're getting a formal element that's failing to gel. And it's a real weak note to start the movie on. Otherwise, this prologue is not awful to start with. There are two characters we're sort of introduced to in this hazy way where it's not clear whether they're tourists or whether they're locals or whether they're even acquainted with one another. Turns out they're husband and wife. Obviously, you've got Victor. Is that what I said his name was? The yeah. photographer. And then you've got his wife, whose name escapes me, and she is visibly pregnant, and she is roped into a uh, ritual of some kind, some voodoo witch doctor thing, by some local youths. And this, of course, I think we're meant to question whether she is being blessed or whether she's being cursed. Right. Uh, which is an open question in the prologue in the original Exorcist, too. You know, is there some kind of witchery happening around the periphery of this dig site that uh, we're just glimpsing kind of in the corners of the frame? But it's much more low-key there than here, where there's, like, explicit voodoo happening, <laughs> and we're just not sure whether it's white magic or black magic, to use admittedly kind of loaded terms. Mm-hmm reason to think that it could be either one because what happens is there's an earthquake and the two of them flee a collapsing building and she is trapped in a stairwell this is another way in which the prologue is very unlike its predecessor that it's so obviously aping because pregnant sense of dread notwithstanding that original prologue is 
kind of a masterful slow burn and a calm before the storm when we start getting the CGI buildings uh, crumbling into dust and fracturing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, that's the furthest possible thing from a calm before the storm, obviously. It's actually the most pyrotechnics we get anywhere in the movie. And yeah. the wife is badly injured, and Leslie Odom Jr. is given a choice. He can save his wife, or he can save the baby. And it's very odd the way that it plays out, because he makes it down to street level way ahead of her. And well, I, I think I think actually what the thing is, is they weren't together when the earthquake hits. I think she right. was in the no. hotel, and he's he's coming from elsewhere, and he's running to the hotel. And that's why he's out on street level, and she never gets there. Right. That stands to reason. It's such a it's such a, a tumult in the in the stairwell, especially the first really twenty or thirty minutes of this movie is full of this kind of camera work where it's like the camera's being attacked by a moth, you know, where there's just like this fluttering, especially in scene transitions. You get a lot of that right off the bat, and then it kind of subsides and then isn't really replaced by anything. The movie has like a kind of obnoxious style, and then none none you know, after a certain point so we as in the original exorcist we jump stateside and we are introduced to two families but really just one and that's of course victor and his daughter angela is that what you said yeah and he's doing the single dad thing and so we're meant to infer well obviously he chose to save the kid rather than his spouse and the other family that we're introduced to very incidentally is, like we said before, a more robust father, mother, multiple kids kind of situation. The one girl, I don't remember her name, but it turns out that she and Angela are tight and the two of them do proceed to wander into the woods. But uh, Catherine, first, I believe, is her name. I think you're right. First, we get a succession of scenes where... The movie is just kind of biding its time and trying to ratchet up the tension where every scene just has some kind of an irritant in it. It starts with Victor and his daughter pulling out of the driveway headed to school in the morning and the neighbor is haranguing them because their trash cans have been out on the street for, I don't know, too long in, in the neighbor's estimation. And then and this neighbor get... turns out to be important as it happens. Right, but it's a very unglamorous first impression. She's set up to be like the nasty neighbor who, if anything, is going to wind up getting got by Pazuzu somehow. Just yeah. to, you know, give him a body that we don't care about. But then it turns out that she is meant to be sympathetic later on. Uh, and then they get to school and they park in the bus lane. And so... They're getting yelled at like, hey, you can't park there, honk, honk, you know, and it's just every scene has an element like that for, I want to say, like upwards of 10 minutes. And it's supposed to be giving us a feeling of unease, engendering that kind of feeling. But really, it's just sort of obnoxious. Yeah, it's and just it's kind coupled, of annoying. And it's coupled with that trapped moth cinema <laughs> uh, uh, transitional style you know and then leslie odom jr is at work where he's a, a professional uh, portrait photographer and he's snapping a photo of the family and the kid is throwing a tantrum and the dad is yelling at the kid and outside there are construction workers tearing up the street with jackhammers you know and so it's just like one damn thing after another and you kind of worry that the whole movie is going to be pitched at that level 
and then the girls wander into the woods, and the movie just stops doing stuff like that. And then, like I said, no other style really emerges to take its place. And so you almost miss it when it's gone, even though it's, like I said, pretty obnoxious. Yeah. The girls don't come home that night and are missing for three days. And this is my favorite stretch of the movie. Like I said at the top, it's kind of a good, sturdy premise, a jumping off point. However, the characters are also thinly characterized that their interpersonal happenings really cannot sustain three days of waiting. So the three days are up practically before you know it. Yeah. Uh, and the only thing that happens in the meantime is that we get a little bit of a culture clash between Leslie Odom Jr. and the two other panicked parents, Catherine's parents, who are both white. And the dad, they're all at the police station together, the three of them. And the dad starts in very much like Tommy in Halloween Kills, like right <laughs> off the bat, like he's ready to <laughs> gather up the torches and pitchforks, you know, evil dies tonight. <laughs> well, yeah, because uh, he seems inclined, the police woman, the detective that they're talking to, says something about, like, there's a a transient community or something, uh, uh, a homeless camp, and uh, uh, there's a transient community, uh, uh, is that what you call a bunch of bums? I bet they yeah, did it, you know. Right, so he's, he's, right, so he's laying into the cop for her PC woke bullshit, <laughs> and he's just kind of MAGA-coded real strong right off the bat, and then nothing really is done with that the three of them wind up warming to each other just in time for them to all stage an exorcism as one kind of big happy family and that's the least of it i mean the room would be crowded if it was just the three parents and their two kids that's already five people but you it's stunning how many people they've roped it's, into the it's third the ex exorcism avengers is what it is <laughs> i mean it's wild and we'll get there but it, it there's a ton of people one of those future exorcist avengers is introduced during this period when the girls are still missing in baffling fashion where <laughs> leslie Odom jr comes home and you know, I always feel like I'm copping to, like, disinterest or being asleep at the wheel, like, not connecting some of these dots or correctly putting the pieces together. It happens, like, once per episode, like clockwork, or, you know. But I have no idea who this guy is supposed to be or how he and uh, Victor know each other. Victor just comes home, and the, this guy, is just sort of portly white dude on a cardigan, is there. And he's got this older, sort of wizened black lady in tow, and they're doing some kind of something or other, something spiritual. They're, like, blessing the house. And Leslie Odom Jr. is like, get the fuck out. Get, get, get out of my house. And it's not at all clear to me how I never figured out who that guy was, and he just keeps showing up, up to and including the protracted climax, which is standing room only. There are two appearances he makes prior to that. They're not of any consequence, so you can be forgiven for not noticing them. I did get up to make a sandwich at one point and did not pause the movie, so mea culpa. Yeah, well, there you go. When Angela and Victor are leaving the house to go to her school on the day the girls go missing, he's across the street like, tell your dad I'll meet him at the gym, and blah, blah, blah. Oh, the and, boxing scene. Was he in the boxing? Yeah, he, he was okay. the he was the sparring partner or whatever. All right, like, I did that's not who that guy is. I was still on the couch when that happened. I did not recognize him <laughs> at all. The, the headgear, you know, the protective headgear doesn't help matters. Right. 
the movie, I may or may not have more to say about this after the break. Some people have come at this movie swinging on the basis of its supposedly regressive politics. I'm not sure that it's intelligent enough to have politics of any kind, but there's maybe a case <laughs> to be made for that. First, you've got the MAGA dad chewing out the cop, being like, you know, Catherine is a, an upstanding member of our church group. She was, you know, she <laughs> she she had the lead role in our Evil Dies Tonight pageant. You know, and he's, he's just very, <laughs> I don't know, just kind of Trumpy and full of bluster. And he says specifically the thing about, oh, a bunch of bums out in the woods. I'll bet that they have something to do with this. Leslie Odom Jr. goes to a soup kitchen, which, you know, I might just be out of touch with the soup kitchen community but it's a, it's a pretty banging spread i did not identify it as a because the, the first shot we get is like a bird's eye view thing of like platters of food and then you see the people who are lined up and having stuff ladled onto their trays and you you see that it's a bunch of homeless folks and i thought oh okay that's you know they're they're eating good good for them and then Leslie Odom Jr. tries to ply them and, and get some information out of them. And they're wildly unhelpful and actually quite sinister. One of them makes an obscene gesture involving a carrot, indicating... I thought it was a hot dog, but yeah, something or, phallic. Yeah, yeah, right. And Leslie Odom Jr. flips the table over. And so th this comes hot on the heels of Catherine's dad decrying the, the, the police officer's woke PC language. And so you just think, like, okay, this is our one brush with the transient population who apparently populate these woods, and they're just kind of these leering demons. <laughs> so, <laughs> if anything, it would seem to, uh, it's, it, I don't know, the movie is muddled, to say the least, on whether the white dad is just being boorish or whether he is right to be afraid that all of the, the homeless huddled in the woods are a bunch of fucking sex predators and deviants who are going to do unspeakable things to his daughter. The whole movie is a hopeless muddle in kind of that way. This rears its ugly head again when Ellen Burstyn is introduced and will be there before you know it because not much of anything of consequence happens after the girls show up. They are found in a barn and then we get a tired retread of some of the hospital scenes from the original movie where the girls are having a litany of tests run on them. And right off the bat, the girls start behaving strangely, being kind of aggressive. There's a very funny, I think unintentionally shot, where in the foreground you've got a doctor explaining to the parents who are equal parts alarmed and relieved because the girls think that they were only missing for a matter of hours. Mm -hmm. They're trying to figure out what could have befallen them that would cause that kind of amnesia something traumatic we're meant to think in the foreground you've got the doctor saying that all the tests came back clean their hymens are intact everything is normal the doctor says meanwhile in the background i think angela is like pawing at a at a glass window like a child vampire you know it's like something out of, <laughs> it's like something out of salem's lot and then you know she starts banging on the glass and we spend a lot of the next half hour kind of in and out of the hospital in a way that feels haphazard, where the movie never establishes a rhythm. They'll get the kids home, and then the kids will do something weird or concerning, and then there will be another doctor scene, and then they'll be back at home. I guess that's a kind of rhythm, but you, you, you never settle into it somehow. It always feels like the hospital stuff is over 
and then you get another scene in the hospital. I don't know if you had that reaction as well, but it yeah. Just... Well, there was there was the hospital, and then there's like the mental hospital where yes. Angela gets taken while Catherine is kind of kept at home and and prayed over, so to speak. The only memorable thing from this stretch, and it's memorable in a negative way, is. And I don't even remember what character says this. I don't even remember what particular context there is. Victor is standing, I think, outside of the hospital or outside someone's house. And it might have been with his pudgy boxing buddy or it might have been with the other parents or whatever. But yeah, some... To you, he was a pudgy boxing buddy. To me, he was a mysterious interloper. who <laughs> 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 just kept materializing. It was He was actually the most supernatural force in the entire movie <laughs> just utterly defying explanation anyway carry on please. somebody somebody just blurts out that's how demonic possession works yeah and i just uh yeah i mean uh catherine's parents do start in with the possession talk even before either of the girls i mean they've been acting strangely and erratically and sort of aggressively but they haven't said anything to my recollection especially perverse and certainly they haven't said anything in like a mercedes mccambridge voice up to that point the first time we get any effort of that kind is when i want to say it's angela is in a hospital bed and she's taunting the neighbor from before who was incensed about the trash cans <laughs> who who happens to be a nurse who is waiting on Angela, and Angela is apparently psychically picking this woman's brain and ferrets out some buried shameful secret to do with her having had an abortion years and years ago. And Angela starts bleeding, you know, in a menstrual manner through the hospital bedsheets. And that's the opening salvo of the Pazuzu stuff. But already Catherine's parents have been acting like you know, yeah, well, <laughs> it is what it is. You know, it's a clear cut case of demonic possession. And granted, they're very churchy. And so maybe they're prone to believing that. But a little incredulity would have gone a long way there. And it's, it's a thankless task for those two actors because they're really just, they have to start Bible thumping right off the bat just to give Leslie Odom Jr. something to oppose scoff at right exactly which is an equally thankless task for him and then he has to scoff at it again when he goes home and the nurse neighbor is waiting for him and she explains why the tete-a-tete that she had with angela was so because the demon in angela's body referred to her by her novitiate name she was going to take her vows and then uh she was not chased needless to say and so she never formally accepted that name, but the demon referred to her by that name. This is all information. It could have been kind of a hair-raising moment, but the information is given to us in a very cart-before-the-horse kind of fashion. It's only after the fact that we learn why any of that was supposed to be alarming. Mm -hmm. And Leslie Odom Jr. Is, is seemingly not swayed by this. I mean, I guess it must plant some kind of seed because he winds up seeking out Ellen Burstyn, I think on the nurse neighbor's recommendation. Yeah, <laughs> she she's like, I, I read Chris McNeil's book in college. Yeah, right. It, it's, it's shoehorned in very awkwardly, where I think the line is something like, I don't know very much about this, but I know someone who does. And it's, it's just, I mean, not 
personally, but I know of someone right. who might be able to help, and it's Avengers Assemble. So he goes to meet with Chris McNeil, who has, in the intervening decades, become like a pantheistic exorcist unto herself. And the line that everyone lambasted when this movie came out, uh -huh. rightfully so, is uh, the two of them are sitting down in her breakfast nook, and she says something to the effect of, you know, you know, I, I never actually participated in the exorcism. They wouldn't let me in the room because I wasn't a member, a member of their damn patriarchy. That last bit, at least, is verbatim. And I know that because it's so bizarrely phrased i mean what do you mean like, like a a member of the patriarchy like a card carrying member <laughs> i mean i was watching this movie with bees who correctly pointed out she talks about it like it's the fucking freemasons or something <laughs> like you know you're either in the patriarchy or you're not in the patriarchy and that's not you know i mean what if you know if you buy into this sort of thing and who wouldn't from this day and age the idea is that everyone is subject to it men and women alike and I think most feminist schools of thought maintain that men and women alike are harmed by it. Right. But it, it's not a club. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, that, that's just the most, it betrays such a facile understanding of this political subtext that they're trying to hoist into position here. It's just facepalmingly stupid. Yeah. It would have been kind of a tedious line you know a tedious thing to bring into this scene just really in any context also the way it's set up is she points this out and then he asks why do you think that is it's not <laughs> her just going straight into the explanation so there was a very easy fix to have made this again not an interesting addition to the scene but at least much less groan worthy she could have just responded to that question with something more flippant like uh, i don't know patriarchy yeah. <laughs> whatever not and then, and i then, wasn't a know, member of the damn patriarchy right yeah I, I think that more of a shrug like uh patriarchy and then followed up with read my book sonny you know or words to that effect maybe there's a whole chapter on it i don't know like i, I think it could have been a little more glib and it would have gone down a whole lot smoother all of the Ellen Burstyn stuff is just so depressing, and it's bad enough, and I normally hate shit like this, but I found myself wishing that her whole performance had been relegated to a Skype call or something like that, <laughs> that they had just done her cameo that way, that she'd Skyped into the movie like Vincent D'Onofrio in Sinister, and that had been that. Instead, she gets involved in a much more hands-on way and unfortunately the low point of all of that is still ahead of us i want to talk about one thing first before we get there well there's one thing that might precede whatever you're getting to so i'm just going to throw it out there real quick her introduction in this film ellen burston's is intercut with a bunch of interview footage of a younger chris mcneil going yeah, this on is exactly talk shows. what i was about to this is okay. exactly what i was just about to get into Go but ahead. No, 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 you, you first because I, I, I think I'm, i've got my knives out for a different aspect the thing that bugged me about that whole montage is that it's cut to a piano rendition of tubular bells and i can't think of anything less inspiring than tubular bells being played on a regular piano <laughs> i mean it's supposed to sound kind of otherworldly you know and instead it's I, that that was just 
the most dev on arrival thing instead it sounds like it it could be a slightly spooky song from the fray yeah right (laughs) yeah exactly it just sounds like an off like if you bought a chintzy like halloween party cd that like track nine the exorcist theme and then it wasn't mike oldfield it was just like someone tickling the ivories you know it just (laughs) feels very off-brand exorcist and I, I just bristled at that in a big way. But the, the whole montage is pretty fucked up, so I don't mean to steal your thunder. No, no. And speaking of that, I remember very distinctly the first time I saw the trailer for this film. It was in front of a movie at a theater, so I didn't, like, seek it out. I didn't know that it was going to be a trailer for an Exorcist sequel. And it starts out just seeming like a pretty run-of-the-mill demonic possession movie. It doesn't need to be tied to any particular IP and then there's just like a couple of stray sort of piano tubular bells notes. And I picked up on it almost immediately. And my first response was, oh, no. <laughs> right. You like Father Mirren in Iraq feeling a terrible foreboding. <laughs> exactly right. But yeah, relative to this scene, my beef with it, and you're absolutely right about the music here, but my beef with it was all these scenes of young Chris McNeil. Correct me if I'm wrong, this isn't archive footage somehow from, like, Exorcist 2. Like, Chris McNeil, Ellen Burstyn was not any part of Exorcist 2, even, like, at the beginning of the movie, right? No, I you have, uh, what's her name, Nurse Ratchet kind of stepping in to, okay. to, to fill that role to the best of my recollection. I think that there's got to be some AI shenanigans happening here. That's what I'm getting at. They've de-aged both her face and also her voice to the point where, like, it's been a couple years since I've seen the original Exorcist, but the voice of young Chris McNeil didn't sound like young Ellen Burstyn from 1973. I thought it was just somebody completely different. Like, <laughs> like, like they de-aged Ellen Burstyn, who did all of the face acting through the CG, and then... She was overdubbed because she sounds like a 91-year-old woman, rightly, overdubbed by some random actress to the point where I was the only person in the theater, which was convenient. I pulled up the movie on IMDb and scrolled to the bottom, and I was looking for a credit for young Chris McNeil voice. Uh And I didn't find one, so again, it must have just been AI tweaked or whatever. Well, yeah, I I think the face they basically get away with because you're only seeing it on, like, fuzzy cable talk show type, you know, setups. But the voice is more problematic. It is not as problematic as a voice that we get in the next scene, which is the low point of Ellen Burstyn's involvement and I think the low point of the movie as a whole. Ellen Burstyn goes to confront, I believe, Angela, although increasingly the girls start to look exactly alike it's it's hard to they they both b has pointed this out as well they at some point mona lisa themselves off screen their eyebrows just vanish and they get these receding hairlines it almost gives them like a cat-like kind of countenance Bees referred to it as demonic alopecia, where their hair was just was just kind of vanishing overnight well, yeah, um, and and in a weird way, their skin tones begin to meet in the middle. Yes. 
Catherine gets a deep tan, and then Angela gets uh, Michael Michael Jackson disease. I don't remember the name. And, and there's there's a dose of jaundice in there too. It's not just like a straight like throw their two skin tones in a blender, and then that's where they meet in the middle. But there is a darkening on the part of the white girl and a lightening on the part of the black girl, and then they add in some yellow for sickliness. Well, <laughs> it's very it's- odd. It, it is very odd, and I will, I think, harp on about this after the break. I recently revisited a feature-length kind of exorcist retrospective making-of thing called Fear of God, I, I, making of the exorcist or something like that. And the makeup artists talk about how they went to great lengths to ensure that the transformation that occurs in Reagan is a steady process where it begins with her mutilating herself with the cross. Obviously, everyone remembers the genital mutilation, but she's also gouging her cheeks, and she cuts her face in such a way that when those wounds become gangrenous, they do so in a way that produces that demonic, almost kabuki theater kind of corpsey face that she winds up with, you know, because she just happens to slash right along the cheekbones And she cuts herself in ways that are going to produce wounds that look dramatic and which change her appearance and the the whole shape of her face where she loses that cherubic thing that Linda Blair had when she was a kid. And in in the new movie, they just don't give a shit at all. Their faces, they just start mutating in this very odd way. Well, they just start mutating in this very run-of-the-mill exorcism shit-bucket movie kind of way. This is common to most of the subgenre, and it's it's interesting that you point out that original Exorcist it was it was all about there were discrete events essentially that you could point to for this pockmark, that pockmark, and so on. Yeah, and exorcism movies subsequent to that have taken the wrong lessons from that and they're just like oh yeah when you get possessed your body starts to break down and you look weird yeah you just turn into a cadaver because you're like rotting from the inside out with this spiritual malaise and like that's fine you can have some of that but that shouldn't be like completely changing your fucking face right and even though this is purportedly an exorcist property it instead just makes the same mistake as all of the pale imitations that have come in the intervening 50 years. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a case, one of many, where a lot of intelligence and, you know, a lot of thought and care went into how something was executed in the original, and then when the pastiche comes along decades later, none of that same thought or care is anywhere to be found. So this much ballyhooed moment where, again, I, I, the aforementioned low point, Ellen Burstyn goes to confront Angela and the two of them have words for maybe two minutes. There's a lot of stupid in these words at one point, And I was reminded of this when you said Ellen Burstyn had become like a pantheistic exorcism expert. She oh, uses yeah. the phrase all holy beings or something name of all holy beings and it's like lady surely you need to invoke a specific name in order for this to way too lame any totemic power at all you need to be even if you're calling out to yahweh and allah and you know just like cast a wide net by all means but there's no sense of ritual here it's way too kumbaya 
yeah, I mean, it was that was kind of kind of embarrassing, and that's something. Again, you want to talk about Avengers of exorcism? That's a that's a motif that never goes away. Alas. Yeah, and also there's a callback for cunting daughter. Yes, which this is what I was getting at a second so ago. So flat. This is them fucking up a voice even worse than they fucked up young Chris McNeil's voice in the montage earlier. So when in this movie, in this scene, when the demon does the cunting daughter thing, it puts on a British accent. And the reason it does that is because in the original movie, when it said, you know what she did, your cunting daughter, it's parroting Burke Dennings, the character who gets thrown out the window. Um, and he was already dead, I believe, by that point in the movie. So it's it's sort of the demon dancing on Burke's grave and also creating an ominous implication, possibly, because there's a there's a dark subtext to that original movie. I remember watching a video essay about this a million years ago. Like We were still in high school hmm. and I watched just like a 10 minute YouTube video alleging that there was something creepy going on with Burke Dennings and what was he doing in Reagan's room, just the two of them, when he was thrown out the window in the first place. And Ellen Burstyn even has a moment when she's told that the two of them were alone together where she seems kind of alarmed. And so the implication is possibly that there was some kind of pedophilic impropriety happening there. And second to Pazuzu, Burke Dennings is that film's foremost purveyor of profanity. You know, there's that incredible moment at the party where he's talking to someone who he's never met before. And he's like, there appears to be an alien pubic hair in my drink. You know, <laughs> so he's he's just a fucking odd guy and you know, prone to I, weird. I heard nothing outbursts. but but Timothy Spall in that <laughs> rendering you just did. And they should have gotten Timothy Spall to do the voice this time around because so the demon is putting on a British accent just because that line was delivered in a British accent the first time. in 1973. But it doesn't sound anything like Burke Dennings. If anything, it sounds like Jafar, kind of. It just sounds like a generic stock British bad guy. No, it's... I'm trying to put a, a finger on it. It sounds like the type of British-accented villain who's played by a cut-rate stand-in Jason Isaacs. Yeah. You know, one of those guys that's get, like, there's some gentility in there, but also some street trash. Like, a guy you might pull out of a British gangster film, but, like, yeah. not a good one. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it sounds like, but it doesn't sound like Burke Dennings, and I no. did turn to bees and say, call him yourself, Iago. <laughs> <laughs> Because, I, I, mean, I guess because everything comes back to 90s Disney for me. And then, atrocity of atrocities, the demon girl leaps at Ellen Burstyn, wielding a cross, and gouges her eyes out. Horrible. And, and this is after they've been going at it, verbally sparring for, like I said, at most two minutes. So it's, and, and people were critiquing this scene and tying it in with the patriarchy line from earlier because it's a little bit like, ah, those bums in the woods, you know? It's like, whose side are we meant to be on here? Because it's sort of a, a vindication for the padres, you know, for the patriarchs who wanted her to just stay downstairs for the love of God, you know, stay out of it. <laughs> she tries to conduct 
this kumbaya exorcism and then immediately gets her eyes stabbed and then is recuperating in a sickbed for the rest of the movie with a bloody bandage. I think they cut back to her exactly twice over the course of this like 25 minute exorcism and they're just the most useless reaction shots of all time. Yeah, it, it reminded me of episode nine, and this is this was them trying to cut around the fact that Carrie Fisher was dead. So here they have no excuse other than Ellen Burstyn not giving a shit, right? You know, <laughs> and who can blame her? Right. Uh, but in, in episode nine, it, it reminded me all of all the Princess Leia stuff in Rise of Skywalker. I remember some weirdness to do with it cutting to her during one of the. Daisy Ridley Adam Driver duels where Leia is supposed to be contributing in some way and then she like dies and it's just like you keep expecting Ellen Burstyn to have some kind of because it does it cuts to her more than once while the climactic exorcism is playing out and she doesn't do anything other than like sense a disturbance in the force and that's it (laughs) she doesn't but you keep expecting her to like lift a hand and try to I don't know, make something happen. But she is truly knocked off her perch when she gets the the Oedipus Rex treatment. And it's just humiliating, just really a debasement. So we are in the home run here, basically. And the gang is all here. There are characters who we haven't even touched on who come out of the woodwork. I'm going to do a quick rundown. Just to give you the full scope. Just a quick head count. (laughs) So we've got Catherine's family's pastor who just showed up in the church scene that we glossed over from the trailer where Catherine's like, the body and the blood, the body and the blood, the body, which is, there are multiple times in this movie where David Gordon Green decided that it's really scary to have somebody who's possessed repeat the same line over and over but at varying speeds evil dies tonight you know he's he's just he unlike you know jeff goldblum he he has has never forgotten his mantras he is increasingly (laughs) just cobbling screenplays together out of mantras which are annoying the first time you hear them to say nothing of the 50th time well, it, but it's a very particular thing in this movie as opposed to just Evil Dies Tonight where they repeat the same thing over and over again, like back to back to back to back to back, 10, 15 times in a row. And again, at varying speeds. Yeah. And the first time when Catherine is like walking up the aisle at the church and muttering the body and the blood before she starts screaming, the first time she says it, she's like, the body and the blood. <laughs> like, i true. almost laughed she she does spit out it out kind of kind of breathlessly that way where the words are just stitched together the syllables just come sort of pea souping out of her face <laughs> in this kind of bilious spray the body of the blood the body <laughs> of the blood <laughs> very silly it's like tourette's a weird yeah. form of tourette's yeah so the two girls are strapped to chairs. Oh, right. We're, you're not even halfway done. Uh, I only with, introduced with, one guy. I got sidetracked. Yeah. So, all right. So you got the pastor. You've got the ex-novitiate nurse neighbor lady. You've got pudgy boxing buddy. You've got his voodoo doctor lady friend. You've got Victor. You've got 
Catherine's parents, and then you've got a priest who eventually comes in. He's a Catholic priest who the neighbor lady had reached out to and who tried to get approval for an official Catholic exorcism and was denied. And he literally shows up before they start, and he's like, I can't help. The church said no, but here's the book with all the words in it. (laughs) Nurse lady, do stuff. And then he ends up, like, camping out in his car and, like, praying outside the house. And at one point, Victor comes out and knocks on his window and said, the fight's in there. (laughs) And eventually he does come in. So he's the last member of the Exorcism Avengers. And when he comes in, it's framed as this, like, oh, thank God, the cavalry's here moment. It's And then... He dies almost immediately, and even before he dies, you're just like, "Why no do we room. care about?" Go no, the, the, it's, 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 there's no wiggle room in here. We are jostling elbows as is. No one knows who you are. There's not room in my brain for you. There is not room in the frame for you. Get lost. It's framed like Han Solo showing up at the end of A New Hope to save the day. Yeah. It's framed like it's that much of a, like, fucking yeah moment. And it's just, it's, no, we don't give a fuck about this guy. And yeah, he proceeds to go through all of the lingo. And then after everyone else, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, there's some stuff earlier on in The Exorcism that we'll probably want to touch on briefly at least. After everyone else is very careful, like, okay, don't get too close. Don't touch the girls while we're doing this, because that's a big no-no. He walks right up to them, puts a hand on each one of their heads, and then, yeah, it's like he catches Black Iker disease. He starts getting the weird, corrupted veins, and then his head gets turned all the way around. You know, his neck's fucking broken, and he's dead. Yeah, and it's not, right, and because he's not actually possessed, I guess this is not survivable the way that it was. For Linda Blair, back in the day, his head just does a 360, and he hits the ground. And it's, I guess, supposed to be an inversion of this famous movie moment, because, oh, this time it's not happening to the possessed girl, it's happening to one of her victims. I think that I remember a line about how Burke Denning's head was, like, twisted all the way around, and they're talking about how the fall couldn't possibly have done that. Right, Uh, that sounds right. There it's scary, because you imagine the little girl using, like, brute strength to do that the strength that she should not possess whereas here it is like you said black iker disease it would be right at home in like possession of hannah grace for some (laughs) schlock fest like that yeah and also while the priest is getting his neck slowly turned around until it breaks the pastor has a reaction shot where he just looks slightly confused (laughs) which I thought was just perfectly timed. He doesn't look at all alarmed. He's just like, (laughs) This is, it's such a just mindless fracas. It's just like all of them doing a football huddle together, (laughs) trying to like... They're all shouting their different prayers. Yeah, again, in this kind of, we are the world kind of way. But it's not even that diverse. Most of them are just doing variations on... The power of Christ compels you. Although no one actually says that, except for when one of the demon girls says it, and then the two of them titter as if at a private joke. Although this is a reference that would be lost on everyone in the room. It would even be lost on Ellen Burstyn, who isn't even there, but wouldn't get the reference anyway because... She wasn't in the room. 
Yeah, because of that, because of that darn patriarchy. I almost like the demons just laughing about it between the two of them and just saying it for our sake and for theirs in this meta kind of way. If the movie had been firing on all cylinders up to that point, I think that would have been a more effective fourth wall break. As is, it just got on my nerves. Everything about all of this was nerve jangling and not in an effective horror movie kind of way. Victor all but entirely seeds his protagonist status during all of this. He just sort of turns into a little bit of a wallflower until the very end when he reemerges because what comes to light is that he actually told the doctors in Haiti to save his wife and sacrifice the baby. Somehow the inverse happened, and now the demon is twisting the knife in him on that basis. You, know, you didn't you want me. me. You know, right. Yeah. And the whole thing in Haiti bothered me right from the outset. It would be one thing if one of the paramedics had said to him, we're going to do what we can, but we might not be able to save both. And then cut to years later. I mean, the, 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 you know, if it comes down to it, who do you want us to save? Instead, the paramedic says, well, we can definitely save one of them. Who would you like it? To, you know, it's just like it, it's. We it's just definitely a, can save one, and we definitely can't save both. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's such a naked contrivance that it just soured me on the whole premise of that deal with the devil kind of thing from moment one, and now it's uh, rearing its ugly head again. Well, and and the demon is making this demand: only one of the girls can survive. You have to choose. And there's this whole big show about how Catherine's mom and then Victor both say to each other from opposite sides of the exorcism room, I'm not going to choose. Yeah, me neither. Meanwhile, Catherine's dad is in the other room having a meltdown, and eventually he breaks the covenant by saying, Catherine, I choose you. I want you to live. Yeah, and so of, course, of course, he's the weak link in the chain. And the devil played a trick because... It goes the other way. Yeah, it cuts to a shot of Catherine in the further. I would th basically. thank you. I was that's exactly <laughs> how I was gonna put it. Which is in no way prepared for. It's the first shot of that kind that we've gotten anywhere in the movie. Just something happening on a totally spiritual plane, which is just like antithetical to Friedkin's whole approach to this material, and is maybe the moment when this feels most divorced from its point of origin. You're never supposed to see beyond the curtain like that. Well, and it, and it's it's so pointless, too, because you see her there for, like, 15 seconds, and then maybe she gets grabbed or something, and that's it. That's the whole thing. I thought that was launching into another... I, mean, I don't want to say act, because I wasn't expecting an, another full half hour or whatever, but another segment of a film where, like, both of the girls were going to be trapped in the further, basically, and then they were going to need help, and maybe that was when Chris McNeil was going to factor back in. Yeah, or they were going to ring up Ed and Lorraine Warren and have them <laughs> go in and fetch them. Right. <laughs> but no, because it does kind of feel like a false climax as it's playing out, and then it turns out it's not a false climax, it is actually just a downer ending. Catherine is in hell? Or is dead, in any case? Well, dead, yeah, dead and in hell horrible horrible thing to have happen and I, I don't i don't want to linger any longer on this scene the only thing that i will mention before we move on 
to the epilogue here is that at one point I jotted down in my notes could really go for an earthquake right about now because weirdly despite an earthquake being what killed the mom at the beginning of the movie we don't get any Richter scale shenanigans happening here and it feels like and like the house shakes more in the original exorcist than it does in this movie despite yeah. the fact that the demon rattling the walls would be more apropos this time because it would be a sort of echo of the tragedy from the prologue and I, it just feels like they totally missed a trick there yeah not like i usually in any other stock exorcist movie i wouldn't i'm not the kind of guy who's like well i really need them to shake the house to its foundations i really need you know like at the end of exorcist 2 the whole house collapses into like a, a chasm of some kind which i think is you know <laughs> complete overkill I'm normally not hungering for anything like that but this time i thought that it would have been uniquely well set up and they just don't go for it i think just because it didn't occur to them there's all kinds of the movie is just littered with missed opportunities like that so epilogue Catherine's in hell <laughs> and yep. uh, angela is back among the living and despite the fact that one of the two girls has become satan's plaything they try to go for this sappy ending that is sort of it ends on a feeling of would-be uplift and i'll read to you again directly from my notes my last note is is that linda blair fuck me (laughs) 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 she has to introduce herself which is convenient enough i guess because she looks almost as old as ellen burston does it might just be an unflattering shot but conveniently ellen burston is now sightless and so when Reagan shows up in this very, it's hey, it's me, right. <laughs> kind of kind of it way. Where she just, yeah, she has to tell her mother who she is. You know, mom, it's me, and that's for our benefit as well. I imagine we will see more of her in The Exorcist. Deceiver, jury's out on whether we see her again in Exorcist. De Beaver. Exorcist to Beaver, Exorcist Dreamweaver, or whatever the case may be. More after the break. Wherever those girls went, they brought something back with them. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Listeners, it's Jim, here as always during the break to tell you some stuff you probably already know. Please follow us on Twitter at ShockDoctorsPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ShockDoctorsPod, or check us out on Apple Podcasts. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you've got an idea for a movie you'd like us to check out, Feel free to send us a DM on social media or email us at shockdoctorspod at gmail.com. And now, back to the show. Have you ever seen anything like this? Mommy? No, but there are people out there who have.
have some experience with possession. Yes, more than I'd like. I believe you can help get our girls back. Exorcism is a ritual. Every culture, every religion, they all use different methods. It's going to take all of them. Don't be scared. We've met before. Mother. And we're back. So, on the subject of Linda Blair coming back, I kind of spoiled that for myself and kind of didn't when I went looking for AI Ellen Burstyn young voice actress on IMDb because I'm scrolling all the way down and it's in credit order, which is in order of appearance for this particular film. And so to get to the uncredited at the bottom, if Linda Blair is the last person to appear, she's going to be immediately above the uncredited all the way at the bottom. So I scroll by and I see Linda Blair and I'm like, oh, well, fuck. And then it takes so long and, you know, we see a bunch of pictures of her at Chris's home that I thought it was possible that she got a credit just for being in all of these pictures. Because some of them looked like they weren't even from Exorcist 1 or 2. And one so, of them, the one of her like sitting in the armchair, I think she might have like a mug or something in her lap, is from a made-for-TV movie that she did called, I want to say, Dawn Portrait of a Teenage Runaway or Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic or something like that, some <laughs> kind of very special episode type thing. Right. But anyway, so I figured, okay, maybe that's all this is. And so, yeah, after assuming that she wasn't going to be in it because there was no indication going into the movie that she was going to be in it. And the demon talking to Chris talks about your daughter's dead. She's in hell. And Chris talking about, I don't know where she is. I haven't heard from her lately. I both ruined it for myself and also subsequently kind of convinced myself, eh, maybe she won't show up. So then when she does show up, I just didn't even really know how to feel. I'm just like, this is kind of pointless. She's not here for any real reason Okay, she's reunited with her mother, but her mother was tangential to the events of this film anyway, basically. So this reunion is even more tangential. And it's a reunion only for the purposes of this movie's construction, because it's not like Reagan got taken away from Chris at the end of the first Exorcist. They don't talk about them being estranged in Exorcist 2. It's so thoroughly fabricated, this reunion at the end, and the fact that it's even necessary, it just feels so pointless. And yeah, it's just most likely setting up for Reagan to be a bigger deal in Deceiver. Well, that's the thing. It's supposed to be kind of heartwarming, which gives us pretty severe emotional whiplash if we care about Catherine at all. Uh <laughs> Again, that that false uplift that the movie goes out on. But really, you're too distracted by the Nick Fury of it all to, you know, <laughs> to, to, to feel anything other than kind of preemptively irritated about whatever the next Exorcist movie has in store for us. Whatever fresh hell DGG's got cooking. We at least didn't have to wait until after the credits. You know, speaking That's of Nick Fury. True. I, I mean... I, I might have said this on the podcast once or twice before. I told it to bees not long ago, and they were kind of amused by it. When I saw Iron Man in theaters in 2008, I walked out when the credits started rolling. I was there at ground zero 
<laughs> of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I and I didn't even I didn't even stick around. You know, my ass was already out the door, which is kind of funny. Yeah, I think I might have gone into it having heard that there was a thing. Yeah, no, I didn't either know way, I I know I saw it live. Yeah, no, I, uh, I I didn't I didn't find out until after the fact. This movie is there's all kinds of goofy stuff in it that we didn't touch on, just down to individual cuts and shot compositions that were laugh out loud funny. There's a bit when the boy who finds the two girls after the three days are up, they're huddling in a barn, and he's going like, Dad, Dad, and then the last time he opens his mouth, <laughs> it does uh, a House of Gucci, Jared Leto cut. You remember that moment in House yes. of Gucci where Jared Leto, he has, he's just, <laughs> he's just fail son you know his whole fortune away and in this in this moment of just like baleful despair he opens his mouth and this blaring car horn noise happens and it's 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 incredibly funny in house of gucci by design and here it's just like getting hit in the face with a wet fish i mean it just comes out of nowhere and is not funny on purpose nor is it like startling in a jump scare way it's just kind of absurd <laughs> well also he just seems like way more alarmed on the third dad than he does in the first two on the first two he's just kind of shocked it's like what the hell are these two teenage girls doing in our barn or stables or whatever the fuck and then on the third one he opens his mouth so wide to yell and looks so perturbed. It's like suddenly he realized that also all of the livestock are strung up from the ceiling by their entrails. Right. <laughs> Very odd. Well, and the, oh, the other bit of weird editing that I wanted to uh, get in my crosshairs here is after, um, and this is a trope that I said several episodes ago, I think it was when we reviewed They, Them, I said that I was sick to death of movies ending using cop car lights as like a, a shorthand for catharsis. Uh -huh. You know, like it's usually accompanied with characters moving in slow motion and the music is always like this droning kind of like, you know, like the trouble's over, you know, <laughs> as you were, the dust is settling. And, you know, if you hear sirens, they're kind of far off sounding. Maybe you get like out of focus cop cars coming in from the distance. Did Jordan Peele teach you motherfuckers nothing? <laughs> well, yeah, there, I mean, there's there's that that makes it kind of politically odious. It's just not a comforting sight for, you know, a lot of moviegoers anymore, uh, if it ever was. And more than that it's just it's just tired and i'm i'm as i said sick of sick to death of it and it happens here cops show up paramedics and characters are moving like they're underwater and it's doing that whole cathartic thing that i was just describing and it takes a million years you know they wheel catherine out on a fucking gurney and it cuts to stuff happening inside the house and then they're zipping her up in a fucking body bag and the cherry lights are bouncing off the tree limbs and yada, yada, yada. And throughout all of this, Leslie Odom Jr. is hugging his daughter. And the effect is to make it look like he's been hugging her for two hours continuously. Because it just keeps <laughs> cutting back to them in this in this endless embrace. And it's just like, it's like he's hugged the life out of her. 
you know, or like she just died in his arms. <laughs> it's just, it, it, it was just the timeline there gets all jumbled. Not the only time that happens in this movie, just the funniest instance of it, at least for me. A lot of weird editing flourishes and just hack shit like that or stuff that feels like zero thought or care was put into it. That's my number one takeaway. And this movie wouldn't, if it didn't have The Exorcist in the title and it was just like an Exorcist ripoff without the official branding, it would still, you know, I mean, you don't have to hold it to that gold standard to no. to see that it comes up short. I mean, it's just kind of woeful. And it doesn't have any of those big swings that Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends had. And none of those, you know, those were all swings and misses for you and I. Yeah. Uh, Halloween Ends has a small army of stands, inconceivably. But for me, it was swing and a miss every time those movies got up to bat. But there aren't, there aren't even any big swings here other than, I guess, Ellen Burstyn getting her eyes plucked out of her fucking head like Oedipus. But even that feels like another contrivance. Like, you know, we've got yeah. Ellen Burstyn for a cumulative 12 minutes of screen time. So we have to do something to, what do they call that hook, that like vaudeville hook? You know, <laughs> that we right. have to just yank her off screen when her time's up just contrive a reason for her to be out of commission. Yeah. Very much, actually, like Laurie Strode in the middle <laughs> Halloween movie. Uh, she's yeah. laid up the whole time in this very retrograde kind of regressive way. I don't know, like I said before, that the movie necessarily does have regressive politics, but you get little tastes of it here and there. You get it with the depiction of the homeless. And again, the movie seems to be going one way and then it swerves. And I don't know, this is just David Gordon Green some weird contrarian instinct that he has, or if he's just flitting here and there and doesn't really give a fuck. But, you know, it's it's like I already rambled about at length where Catherine's dad is disparaging the transients, and then it turns out that he's right to do so because they're a bunch of fucking scum on the basis <laughs> of our one encounter with them. Right. And, uh, and, the, and the reason that my earlier ramble included all of the stuff about how nice the spread was at the soup kitchen is because it gives that scene kind of a weird subtext of these lascivious homeless folks have it too good these you know, welfare they're, they're... kings and queens exactly and so you've, you've got questionable politics cropping up there you've got it again a, a weird swerve with the patriarchy line where okay so now she's a feminist exorcist who belongs to no one specific theological tradition we're all going to join hands in brotherhood or sisterhood as the case may be and it's going to be this kind of woke thing this you know inept woke thing but you know <laughs> a, a a would-be progressive thing an attempt at some kind of progressive thing nonetheless and uh, then her eyes get scooped out of her fucking head and that's the last <laughs> we see of her basically so she just looks fucking foolish and then, of course, there's all the abortion stuff. I called this movie an abortion less than a minute into this episode. It does traffic in a lot of, you know, and, and this bothered me less than it bothered some people because it is coming from the mouth of the devil. The devil is just going to say whatever is the most cutting, the most psychologically scarring for you. So if you had an abortion that went against your religious beliefs and you have a deep-seated feeling of shame about that, of course, that's going to be what the devil gets into. But, the, you know, the nurse having had an abortion coupled with 
the dad trying to abort Angela in order to save his wife. There's a redundancy there. You don't need both of those. And it does, the fact that they're both present makes the abortion issue into not just a one-off thing, but it, it gives it the loftiness of an actual theme <laughs> right. because because it comes up twice. And that also feels regressive to me a little bit. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm less incensed about that one than uh, some other peanut gallery folks that I've, that I've, that I've seen. I didn't do a deep dive. And, you know, if I saw a Twitter thread about Exorcist Believer, I scrolled right on by. But, you know, the murmurings that I've heard, I got, obviously, the damn patriarchy line that was everywhere for like a day or two. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I got other whispers about the movie possibly having a conservative streak. And again, I don't really know that it does. It's just, but it, it, it happens just often enough to give me pause and not for nothing if it had any panache at all i wouldn't be you don't need to summon the ambulance you know i'm not crying my snowflake tears over here <laughs> about the movie possibly being retrograde or, or regressive a little bit of fucking style and and a little bit of momentum is usually all it takes for me to get over those bumps in the road unless the movie is just chronically annoying about it like the hunt or something like that mm -hmm. you know where that's the only thing the movie has going for it that's the whole substance of the thing as well as informing of the style he, he, you know here a little style a little panache and i would not have you know i think given um the movie's politics or lack thereof really very much attention i might have just mentioned them in passing i mean you never know if it were a, if it were a better movie and more of a sensation, maybe the discourse would have been even bigger because it would have been on more people's minds and would have been the talk of the town. Instead, it appears to have already kind of just come and gone, despite having hit theaters around Halloween. It got punted to streaming almost immediately. I think it made money. I don't know how much, but it feels like a non-entity. Like, even more so than Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends, it feels like a movie that no one is excited about. Yeah, that's for sure. Which is a, a sorry thing, because it's the first Exorcist movie in 20 years, give or take. Yeah, I guess I forgot about the warring different cuts of the same prequel. Um, yeah, right. I was, I don't, I was going yeah, back I don't to remember. Exorcist 3, which I don't remember 33 when Paul years ago. when Paul Trader's version came out for real. But yeah, that was 2005, one, of the, <laughs> I think. one of the oddest things in the annals of Hollywood history. Super weird. <laughs> It's a weird franchise altogether. The movies are all very divorced from one another. I think that Exorcist 1 and 3 makes for the nicest double feature because they're both the two that William Peter Blatty was involved with. But Exorcist 3 or Legion or whatever you want to call it is an odd sequel in a lot of ways. I don't know. It's a series that kind of bifurcates after the first one where you've got the Reagan sequel and you've got the Kinderman sequel. And then one movie bifurcated. Yeah, right. One movie <laughs> that literally, like, produced twins. <laughs> Very funny. But yeah, it's like herding cats. You know, it's not a, a franchise that lends itself well to marathoning. Because no. it's always been a bunch of sequels kind of fleeing in separate directions. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and this new one is, um, is no exception. I mean, I guess deceiver is going to pick up right where this one left off although whether leslie odom jr or any of the other characters are going to come back i mean i don't think angela is going to get repossessed that would be pretty dumb but i wouldn't rule it out i guess i don't know 
it's not worth speculating, I suppose. There's a couple things during the exorcism sequence that we haven't touched on yet that I would like to. There is an interlude at one point where the voodoo lady, for lack of a better term, and maybe that's kind of glib and dismissive when the woman is black and she's doing something that isn't Catholic, but... I mean, it's hard to say just what she is doing because she barely has a line of dialogue to call her own. I mean, she's more mysterious than the boxing buddy with whom she is closely affiliated. I mean, the two of them seem to be kind of a package deal. They generally show up together. Well, she does a lot of stuff with herbs and things. Yeah, well, and as I already mentioned, I had no idea who the fuck he was supposed to be. So the fact that she is even more of a cipher than he is means call her what you want, because the movie didn't give us anything to go on there. Right. So anyway, at one point, she kind of takes the lead in the exorcism and seems to be making significant progress, more than the ex-novitiate nurse lady or the pastor or anybody else. And she provokes the two girls to start emitting this, like, orange mist out of their mouths. And you say she barely has a line of dialogue. She definitely has one here because she says something so odd. Yeah, she she says something about eruption. Yeah, like it's like volcanoes. There, it's like lingo about a specific kind of exorcism process. Like they're just they're introducing lore or something in this throwaway way. It's like it's vapor from inside their bodies. They're they're approaching an eruption. And then she takes some herbs or some shit and throws them into the fireplace, which produces this wave of smoke. And then there's a battle of the smoke. The smoke from the fireplace swirls around and fights with the orange vapor and then eventually engulfs it and pulls it back into the fireplace where it gets destroyed. And it's just this, this... That sure does happen. It's so odd. It's like they're getting away deliberately from just the broad Catholic Christian concepts of demons and and hell and the devil and so forth and shifting into this sort of more generically occult, witchy, fantasy novel sort of stuff. But then they, they never take it any further than that. That's the last we hear about any of that shit. It's almost like they were anticipating, like, okay, we've got this witch doctor character. Now, we've got to give her a cool moment. This is such superhero logic, but I I have a hunch this might have actually been how this came about. If If we don't give this character something cool to do, like a standout moment where she turns the tide of battle, then people will get on this movie's case on Twitter because we let the priests do all of the heavy lifting in the exorcism. Okay, so what do we have her do? And then it's just this Harry Potter bullshit that you just described, because they don't know, once you get away from the playbook that the original movie established, it they just launch right into, like, the silliest parts of Serpent and the Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I, you know, who knows? I might be wrong, but I, I think that they just wanted to give her a little moment in the spotlight, and then they just went with, like, the first thing that occurred to them, and it's ludicrous. It has no business being here. Yeah. And the one other thing, it's a small thing, we already alluded to a little bit, although 
there's a separate more explicit bit in this direction we make fun of black iker all the time because it's just such a stock late aughts early 2010s and onward horror movie trope just like oh there's this black ooze that's a symptom of bad stuff happening it's got to be there but it's criminal in a legacy sequel in the midst of a franchise where the first film has its own very distinctive, unique vomitus, namely the pea soup, to go ahead and have the possessed girls spit up a bunch of black ichor that, like, crashes into the ceiling. Right, I mean, it should look like the contents of a sick girl's stomach. That's what gives that first movie that layer of, like, medical reality that makes it credible and therefore scary. You know, it's why the hospital scenes feel so much more fitting in that movie than they do here. And also they're paced out much more intelligently in the original movie than they are here. But yeah, that's, again, it's just the filmmakers lapsing into exorcist imitation mode where they're aping the people who have been aping the people who have been aping the exorcist. (laughs) Yeah. Much like the creature design, the design of the, the girls' faces being totally lackluster this time around. Yeah. I uh, complained about how Leslie Odom Jr. is assigned this totally predictable arc where he is the non-believer, and then eventually he has no choice but to believe in the face of all of these demonic antics. And as in so many other areas, the original Exorcist is kind of the gold standard here. I preferred Chris McNeil's version of this arc. Again, the fact that she's an atheist, seemingly, and hasn't raised Reagan in a religious household is an interesting wrinkle in that original movie because it's one of the first questions that the priests ask and the doctors ask. Is there any reason to believe that an exorcism would work? even just in a placebo capacity. Like, is this something that Reagan has a frame of reference for? Is there any reason to believe that it could exert some kind of psychological influence over her that would be productive or therapeutic? And the answer is no, because Reagan's not religious and neither is her mother. And her dad's out of the picture, basically. And despite being the non-believer, Ellen Burstyn is the one who ultimately pushes for the exorcism because she feels like she's up against a wall and she's run out of options. And that's an interesting predicament for her to be in. She really demands it. She's getting pushed back from Father Karras, and she just lays into him and says, no, you, you exercise my daughter, goddammit. You know, it's like, it doesn't <laughs> matter. She's kind of clinging to it as this, as this last-ditch Hail Mary kind of thing. And it's not this hackneyed approach where she finds God or anything. I mean, I guess maybe she does in an incidental sort of way, but it's really just desperation. Hail Mary. Yeah, right. I'm now a move of desperation. Exactly. And that's so much more human than what we get in nine out of 10 exorcist movies, which are always saddled with atheist protagonists who have a big, like, villainous professor in a God's Not Dead movie (laughs) kind of speech somewhere in the first or second act where they're like, would any loving God let this happen? And then by the end, you know, their hands are clasped in prayer, and their knees are on the ground, and Ed Warren is breaking out his acoustic guitar somewhere. Oh, hey, who? 
And I just think that if you're going to do that, put some stank on it somewhere, you know, like put, do, do something to mix it up and make it novel. I think that the trajectory of Chris McNeil's character is one example of how to do that in a way that does not feel preachy or like a foregone conclusion, but is just a, a very relatable mother in distress kind of thing to do. I also think part of what makes Chris McNeil an interesting character in that first movie is that she is a celebrity. She's a famous actress. And the idea that all of this is happening in the home of someone famous kind of adds to, in small ways, it contributes to the feeling of paranoia in that first movie, the idea that if they don't play their cards right, there could be a lot of scrutiny, a lot of eyes, a lot of people poking their heads in, and they want to avoid that if at all possible. And so that's, and I'm not the first person to point this out, that's what makes it so befuddling that she went on to write a book, A Mother's Explanation, I think is the title. You know, part of the happy ending at the end of the original Exorcist is that they've successfully averted a scandal. They kept a lid on the whole thing. Yeah. And then she blows it wide open and devotes her life to the study of the exorcistic arts, which is not, you know, she's, she's an actress. She's based on Shirley MacLaine, who William Peter Blatty was friends with. This is something else that I learned relatively recently from that behind the exorcist, behind the scenes making of or some other, you know, I fell down a little bit of an exorcist rabbit hole these past couple weeks. The two of them were buddies, and I think Shirley MacLaine was actually supposed to play Chris McNeil at one time. Anyway, it matters not. Point being, I think that a book like that, A Mother's Explanation, would be received very differently coming from a famous actress. You know, on the one hand, she would already have a platform, so that makes it a little bit of an easier sell. On the other hand, it makes it that much easier for a sudden career detour into exorcism to be like a punchline you know yeah i mean i guess all, celebrities are eccentric it just it just screams leno fodder yeah exactly or, or or i guess to be more period accurate carson right and that's not touched on at all in the new movie and i think if you want to be true to chris's character that would have been one way to make us feel like there's actually some kind of continuity between these two movies and that the character didn't just like reinvent herself consequence free you know, after. I mean, she's literally making a movie with Burke Dennings when her daughter falls ill in the original movie. She has a, a thriving career. So it's, um, I don't know, just another thing that made her feel like a real person that gets ditched and dropped by the wayside just so that she can be this sort of Gnostic whatever she is. You know, this, this pantheistic, non-denominational something or other, which is just, I don't know, feels a little too cuddly for who she is, who I remember her being. It's just not the same character as far yeah. as I'm concerned. It's a real letdown. Well, on to recommendations. I, I said... Towards the beginning of the episode, before the plot rundown, the fact of there being two girls does nothing for the movie, doesn't change the dynamics of the exorcism, the way it plays out. Anything that one girl says, the other girl could have said just as easily. It seems like they've been infiltrated by the same entity. Basically, the only thing that there being two girls adds to it is the demon's 
trick of conning Catherine's dad into making a choice. Right. Because obviously if there's one girl, you're like, which one do you save? Well, the only one. Yeah. But that that was also so brain dead that that doesn't actually add anything good. Yeah, I mean, again, it's what I'm always saying about these movies. I didn't want to go on this particular rant again because I've done it so many times. There's nothing in this movie that lives up to the Pazuzu patter in the original Exorcist. You know, your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karis, etc. This movie is subterranean. It's like not even within spitting distance of that kind of acerbity. And the payoff at the end of the day being what's the devil going to do to really salt the wound i know the trolley problem (laughs) this is this that that, they'll never see that coming it's beneath the devil i think to be doing that kind of thing i mean you get a version of it in the original with damien going take me take me but he volunteers that's his he introduces that notion that's his innovation that's his like checkmate maneuver it's not the devil's idea although the devil takes him up on that offer and it's, uh, again, just a, just a case of them regurgitating something in this bilious, brain-dead kind of way. This whole movie is just a lot of pea soup. But anyway, if you want horror movies featuring two pubescent girls where you actually need two girls and there being two girls changes the movie significantly, then I would point you in two directions. One is a Heavenly Creatures, Kate Winslet, Melanie Linsky, early uh, Peter Jackson movie about two girls. Uh, it's a true crime case in New Zealand, two girls who uh, committed matricide. It's a, a horror movie and a little bit of a supernatural horror fantasy insofar as the two girls are in thrall to this kind of twisted Narnia-esque fantasy world that they want to escape to. Mm-hmm. In a way, it kind of portends the Slender Man stabbing from a few years ago. Again, it's a case of two young girls who believe that in carrying out this grisly crime, they're going to be made worthy of being spirited away to some version of Wonderland, some shared fever dream that they've concocted. There's a good documentary about that called, I think, Beware the Slender Man. That would be a, a good companion piece with Heavenly Creatures. And then the other recommendation is from the early 70s. It's called Don't Deliver Us from Evil. And it's about... Uh, two school school girls, uh, more like high school age, if I remember right, getting into a culty kind of stuff and eventually staging a little bit of a carry at the prom kind of stunt to stick it to their classmates. And in both cases, in both of these my, both of these recommendations, or I guess all three of them, if you lump in the documentary, the bond between the two girls provides the movie with its dramatic meat it's about their relationship ginger snaps would be another example of this the fact that we get so little of the girls pre-possession robs the movie of any life force that it possibly could have had i mean they look physically almost identical by the end of the film and they're basically interchangeable even prior to their you know their 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 demonic alopecia setting mm-hmm. in and rendering them nigh indistinguishable from one another i think that um we should have gotten more of them before they went missing to give us an idea of who they are we get more time with their parents but their parents are not that interesting either 
not have have no interior lives seemingly nothing going on the movie is just half-assed on a very foundational level i mean the 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 screenplay is just like a wet piece of kleenex you know it's just it's just totally totally unappealing so watch heavenly creatures watch don't deliver us from evil both of them by the way are much more have a much more secular bent neither of them are like demonic possession movies there's not going to be heads spinning or objects floating around drawers opening by themselves things of that nature they're much more grounded but they demonstrate how you ought to go about depicting it's a facet of this movie that is just absent that, that creates a vacuity that the rest of the movie just kind of collapses into i think we need to know who these girls are and what they mean to each other in order for any of this to mean anything to us so check out heavenly creatures check out don't deliver us from evil and if you want a better child abduction movie which this movie is for a matter of minutes and it's probably the high point of the movie despite being no great shakes prisoners is definitely a worthwhile watch well you you snaked my recommendation right there at the end matt oh no (laughs) (laughs) before i get to that though it is kind of funny that you have just recommended a film called don't deliver us from evil when i have on multiple occasions made reference to frankly a rather disposable scott derrickson film called deliver us from evil that one with eric banna that i like rather more than it probably deserves i just thought that was kind of funny but yeah prisoners was going to be and i guess still is my recommendation in terms of child abduction and in particular you know the abduction of young girls even though it's not a horror movie it's definitely a moody thriller it's also substantially more horrifying than anything that happens in the exorcist believer so oh yeah and it it, it does that thing i like it's not as folk horror inflected as like true detective say but it has a little bit of that taste to it just enough to kind of make you lean forward in your seat and go like, ooh, this could tip over into horror country if it wanted to. And that's a tantalizing prospect all through the movie. And even after it kind of fails to deliver on that implicit promise, you don't feel burned just because it being in the atmosphere was enough to season the dish. You know what I mean? Yeah. At least that's how I felt. Yeah, I'm with you there. It's really a good abduction, investigation, cops, grieving parents thing. There's essentially two leads. Jake Gyllenhaal plays the detective investigating things. Hugh Jackman plays one of the fathers, becomes essentially a vigilante. It's got a lot of good stuff going on. Well, and, and the dual protagonist thing really works like gangbusters because A, it makes the sleuthing a lot more believable because if it had just been Hall or Jackman, they would have had to do an improbable amount of detective work. But when it's distributed equally between the two of them, they can arrive at separate discoveries and separate deductions, and then we're privy to all of it. So it makes a kind of labyrinthine crime feel like less of a headache. You know, right. and, and, and it's less contrived that we're getting access to all of this information because we've got two characters hell-bent on solving the case, both working independently. 
uh, you know, working <laughs> overtime. And the funny thing is that they they both are equally unhinged, but in diametrically opposed directions. You know, one of them being a vigilante, and the other one being an officer of the law. There's always a sense that the two of them, despite wanting the same thing, are going to come into conflict with one another. That is a million miles removed from the really blasted interpersonal strife that you get between the bereaved parents in this movie, where there's a little bit of a culture clash thing to begin with, where it looks like the two dads are going to spend the whole movie butting heads. But then they basically put their differences aside, and everyone teams up under the banner of exorcism to do battle together. And yes, the dad does screw the pooch at the end, the, the white dad, but it's not a source of heightened stakes and elevated tension the way that it ought to have been. And Prisoners is a, a little bit of a masterclass in that, you know, the way that two people trying to achieve the same end can be at each other's throats at the same time without it feeling like our time is being wasted or like it's a, just an invention of the screenwriter. It's a good movie. Yeah. And then, frankly, if you're looking for a movie in the Exorcist franchise, you're better off watching probably any of the other ones. I haven't seen either version of the prequel, but I would venture to guess they're at least maybe marginally more interesting. They're more interesting by virtue of there being two of them. I mean, like I said, that's just <laughs> such, an, such an anomaly. It automatically confers interest upon them, I think, although neither movie is very good. Predictably, the Paul Schrader one is more serious-minded, high-minded, and then the, um, who did the other one? Was it Rennie Harlan? It was somebody yeah. like that. Yeah, it was Rennie Harlan. I mean, you couldn't find two filmmakers who were less alike. Pretty much. <laughs> but, that's, but that's what makes it so funny. It's it's like a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Both worth watching, both better than this. Heretic, Exorcist 2, you know, widely derided, one of the worst sequels of all time biggest turkey of all time a better than average exorcist movie if you're looking at every exorcist movie ever made it is better than whatever the median is there and it's a lot better than believer no doubt about that it spends most of its runtime going off the rails but that has a certain sort of pleasure to i mean it's like any almost any john borman movie yeah it's got that go for broke thing that, that he always does. Yeah. Pauline Kael liked it more than the original Exorcist, contrarian that she was. Right. So, yeah, it has its own attendant pleasures, even though it's kind of a mess. You've got a, a shot in it where James Earl Jones opens his mouth and a leopard growl comes out that rivals the honking <laughs> cut from this movie for sheer weirdness. Yeah. One thing Heretic does that I like is that it is full of trilling and eulation like nonstop. <laughs> like it's 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 relentless and i kind of i wish that more exorcist movies did that i mean maybe it's passe and i was just kind of this <laughs> nebulous tribal thing but you know I, I i don't know it's kind of a scary noise it kind of it's i, I find it disconcerting personally <laughs> and uh i don't know just sonically these movies used to be special. The first two certainly are. I mean, the way that Exorcist uses Islamic prayer in the opening over the titles is also kind of questionable. But I would be lying if I said it didn't make my hair stand up a little bit, just in context. So I, I think just, I don't know, just more of a sense of 
foreignness and of exotic religiosity. I don't know, that can that can do something for a movie like this and maybe I'm just, you know, an ignorant American or whatever. And I guess that doing that would run counter to the kumbaya thing where the gang's all here. All divine beings. Exactly. So maybe, you know, so maybe the movie's too progressive for its own good or maybe it's regressive. It's not really much of anything. It's pea soup, like I said. But it doesn't use pea soup, which no. is a mistake. <laughs> it, no, it's right. It's 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 worse than pea soup. It's a pile of black ichor. Yeah. And I met Jerry Daisy. <laughs> yes, we've gouged out Chris McNeil's eyes. Maybe in the next movie, Reagan McNeil's arms get chopped off. Who knows? Uh, until next time, I'm Jim Smith. Then I met Jaron Daisy. And we're the Shock Doctors. We'll see you later. As always, we have some acknowledgments. Our music was composed by Will Connor. Audio for the bumpers was taken from the Exorcist Believer official trailer uploaded by Universal Pictures. All rights reserved. Our next episode will be up on Sunday, November 19th, and we will be discussing the box office smash video game adaptation, Five Nights at Freddy's. See you then. Thank you.